Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Hushman Badi on December 12, 2021. Hushman has lived amongst both the poorest nations and the wealthiest nations of the world for more than four decades, where he witnessed inequality in standards of living and the widening gap between the rich and the poor. It was this condition that fueled his passion for studying researching, and exploring alternative solutions to tackle some of the challenging economic questions of our time. Hushman got involved in social and economic development projects in Bangladesh as well as in the West Indies. I started the interview by asking Hushman where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I was born in Iran. After finishing high school and doing two years of compulsory army service, I married and left Iran, and that was in 1975. And since then, we have lived in several countries, including 10 years in Bangladesh, seven years in Canada, 10 years in St. Vincent and the Grenadines in the West Indies, and also 12 years in England, UK, and for the last six years, we are in Scotland part of UK. Let me also add here, Varen, that growing up in Iran as a part of religious minority is not very pleasant and easy. Discrimination against Baha'is could be seen at all levels of society, which has also increased in the last 40-45 years under the Islamic Revolution. You grew up as a Baha'i, so what's your family's religious history with the Baha'i faith? Both grandparents from my side, both grandparents from the father's side and mother's side were Muslims. They accepted the Baha'i faith when they were very young, and all their children have grown up as Baha'is. My wife actually is from a Jewish background, and her grandfather accepted the Baha'i faith. So I am from a Muslim background, and my wife is from a Jewish background. And we both were born and raised in the Baha'i families. If you allow me, Warren, I'd like to add a couple of words here. You see, the word acceptance or recognition of a new faith is more appropriate than the use of the term convert. One of the fundamental principles of the Baha'i faith is the oneness of religion. And it simply means that we believe that there is only one God. Then the spirit of all faiths is one. And each prophet of God represents the same God at different times. And of course, with different names. But they are all one in spirit. So when people accept the Baha'i faith, they are not really converting, but recognizing it as another faith representing the same God. So Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, is the latest representative of God for this age 
And perhaps we can say he has added a new chapter to the book of God. You left Iran being married with your wife in 1975. What were the circumstances that had you leave at that time? Well, that time was actually not bad. Still, it was the period of Shah. There was not that much discrimination in Iran against any minority. But still, discrimination was seen more in smaller cities, in rural areas. But there was relative freedom for all people, religious, Baha'i faith, or non-Baha'is. There was a relative freedom we had during those days. The circumstances changed after Islamic Revolution in 1979. Right. So what was your reason for leaving in 75? We finished our high school in Iran, and the reason we left actually was to continue our higher education, which was very difficult to do in Iran because of limited number of universities, very high level of students that they wanted to enter to universities, and there was very difficult to enter and get admission because of the limited number of universities. But at the same time, our aim was to serve other Baha'i communities, other people. So uh, the term pioneer is mentioned in the Baha'i writings in the Baha'i community. And pioneers are those who leave their own home uh, to go to another country and serve other people. So that was another purpose that we had. When we married, we actually we had that idea and that wish to go to another country. And Bangladesh was a choice. We could go easily to university and do our higher education. And at the same time, serving the Baha'i community and also the larger community in Bangladesh. And how long were you in Bangladesh? We lived there for 10 years. So my wife and I finished our university education there. She did and completed her medical school, and later on, she did her specialty in psychiatric. And I did my master in economics, and later on, I did my PhD in England. Actually, my research area is Baha'i economy. Also, let me add, Warren, that while living in Bangladesh, we were involved in a number of social and economic development projects, mainly in more rural areas. As you know, Bangladesh is one of the poor countries. In fact, in 1975, Bangladesh was one of the four poorest nations in the world. And the government couldn't afford to provide the basic education for all its citizens. The faith organizations, including the Baha'i community, played an important role to help having a number of educational programs mainly in rural areas that people couldn't afford to send their children to a school in bigger cities. I have to say that some of those schools started in the early 1980s by Baha'is still exist at much more advanced level. Can you give me an example of one school, Hushman? That one of the schools that I was involved in early 1980s that was in one of the rural areas. We had several of them, but one of them still exists 
which is called Rahbanian School. This school right now has more than 100 full-time students that are still there, that are expanding in much more advanced level, and they have more vocational and also academic education. So in your bio, Hushmand, you said that you spent four decades in the poorest nations and in the wealthiest nations. You had mentioned the UK, and you also mentioned Bangladesh and the West Indies. You said that at that time, you witnessed the inequality in the standard of living and a widening gap between the rich and poor. And it said it was this condition that fueled your passion for studying, research, and exploring alternative solutions to tackle some of the challenging Mm -hmm. economic questions of our time. Part of that, I guess, is the work you're doing with the Wilmette Institute. Before we get into what your work there in regards to economics, can you briefly tell the audience what is the Wilmette Institute? Let me start with this, Warren, that moving from Bangladesh as one of the poorest countries in the world to Canada as one of the richest, that was a culture shock for us. Can you describe that for us? Yes, in several ways. One is from the population density. In 1984, that we moved to Canada was the most densely populated country in the world. If I say one example, in Bangladesh, in every square mile, 4,000 people live. Compared to Canada, that in every square mile, only 30, 35 people live. So that was a culture shock for us, moving from such densely populated area to Canada, such a big country, and have much less population. And then we come to the question of poverty. You know, when we talk about the definition of poverty, for me, we have to live in the poor areas, living with poor people to understand the concept of poverty. Poverty cannot be defined from academic point of view. We have to live with them to understand, to feel the issue of poverty. And when we moved to Canada, it was completely a different story. So that was a cultural shock for us. And then you went to the West Indies after that, right? After Canada? By the time we finished our education in Bangladesh, the Islamic Revolution was happened in Iran. That was in 1979. And that time we were in Bangladesh and we lost actually our Iranian status. We couldn't go back to Iran. Although we were happy to be in Canada with an excellent advancement and reputation, we were not able to work in our own field and profession. Therefore, our next move was to go to a country where we could work in our own field and at the same time be of service to people. We wanted to be more useful and productive member of society. So St. Vincent and the Grenadines needed both medical doctors and teachers for higher education. And and that was a good choice for us and the whole family to move to St. Vincent. And we lived there actually happily for 10 years. That's a physical shock, right? From a cold country like Canada to a warm climate. Yes, that was really another culture shock. 
actually we never heard the name of St. Vincent, you know, and the Grenadines in West Indies, you know. But our aim was to go to a country that we can serve the community mm. and also work in our own profession. And then yeah. you felt you needed to get your doctorate, and so you went to England? After St. Vincent, we came to England, and that was another opportunity for me. I always wanted to see what is the Baha'i perspective in solving economic problems. That actually started in Bangladesh. When I saw the level of poverty in Bangladesh, I thought that the Baha'i writings has so much to contribute to the eradication of poverty, not only in Bangladesh, but worldwide. And it was there that I started my research from the Baha'i writings, and actually I completed a compilation from the Baha'i writings, which was from Bangladesh. It is now printed more than 700 passages from the Baha'i writings on the concept of economics and related subjects. It is called the principles of spiritual economics, but that is a compilation of Baha'i writings. You teach a course at Wilmette Institute called Economic Justice in a World of Injustices at the Wilmette Institute. What is the Wilmette Institute, Hushman? Wilmette Institute is an educational institution that draws upon the principles of the Baha'i faith to inspire sustained social change for the common good. The courses that Wilmette Institute offers are designed to explore individual and collective transformation by empowering students to advance a more just and peaceful society. The courses are online, and as far as I know, are short-term, between 8 to 12 weeks. Some of the courses that I can mention, they are on arts and sciences and history, religious studies, and also courses on sustainability and social issues and much more. All the information about the Wilmette Institute can be found online. The course uh, I am involved, as you said, is uh, economics. Uh, they are in two levels. The primary level and the advanced level is called economic justice in a world of injustices. So describe for us, Hushman, your course. Well, Warren, I recommend you attend this <laughs> course. <laughs> the course is about nine weeks. If you look at the root cause of some of the major problems that humanity is facing today, it is the absence of justice in one way or another. In fact, historically, the reason for most of the revolutions in the past is related to the absence of some kind of justice. In our time, we are witnessing injustices of all kinds, injustice against the women, injustice against the black people and minorities, the poverty issue, child labor, injustice to our natural environment, and much more. So the course is called Economic Justice in a World of Injustices. And here participants identify a number of such injustices that are relevant to their own community, to their own time, to their own lives, and also to the wider society. Now, the course responds to the root cause of injustices. One aspect of course is about 
the problems associated with the process of globalization that you are having. Let me expand this a little bit more. What I mean here is that although the idea of globalization is good, the process taking place is wrong. The current process of globalization is generating unbalanced economies. For example, wealth is being created, but too many countries and people are not sharing in its benefits. The increased wealth has been accumulated in the hands of what we call super rich. A good number of writers actually, and experts in the field of globalization, maybe I can mention a few names, Joseph Stiglitz is a Nobel Prize winner, among them Amartya Sen, Nobel Prize winner, another critic of uh, this free market capitalism, Paul Collier, and many more. They have written about this subject, and the view is that these global imbalances are morally unacceptable and politically unsustainable. One example of injustice agreed by most writers is in relation to the current process of globalization that the benefits of globalization has not distributed fairly and justly among citizens of the world. So these are the things that we raise in this course and students, participants participate, they write posts, and then myself and another colleague of mine respond to these views of participants. You touched on it a little bit, Hushman. Your course speaks of viewing economics and economic justice through the lens of distributed justice. Maybe mm-hmm. you could elaborate a little bit more mm-hmm. on this distributive injustice. You know, Baron, in the last 200 years, there are great achievements in advanced technology, in manufacturing products, and as a result, enormous wealth has been created. Now, the reason the gap between the rich and the poor is increasing is that although wealth is used actively, but in the hands of only a minority of rich people, or the increased wealth and advanced technology and knowledge are not used for the benefits of the entire humanity. One example is that wealth is used in the production of those goods and services that are destructive, they are harmful for human and also for the natural environment. The wealth is not used enough for the production of, for example, appropriate farming equipment for a small size agricultural land in the less developed countries. Therefore, issues of economic justice are fundamentally about ethics and relevant to the moral foundation of income contribution and distribution. Now, distributive justice is not necessarily belonging to the scope of applied economics, but it relates to normative issues, social issues, and the role of morality and government regulation and addressing social and economic justice. So it seems, Warren, that economics, in my view, 
it seems that economics is misunderstood. Economics is not simply about supply and demand and prices and competition. It is much more than that. It is about improving the standard of living of the generality of population in relation to health and education and employment opportunity. You know, it is about providing appropriate knowledge and technology for farmers and advancement in agriculture in areas with poor quality of land. So it is about taking care of our natural environment. How can, for example, we have a good life when we can't breathe or when our neighbor is hungry? Or how can one enjoy one's wealth while more than a billion people live in absolute poverty? So justice becomes a guiding concern and a core principle of human interaction. So this is in brief, what is distributive justice in my view, and also the way we teach uh, in this course. Pushman, you have a book published called Economics and the Baha'i Faith. Does this work go into greater detail to what you're talking about? Yes. If you allow me, I will expand this a little bit more. The book is Economics and the Baha'i Faith. Let me just say what is the purpose of writing this book. As I said, it seems that economics is not understood well, and most people are familiar with a narrow definition of economics. Now, this book explores the view that economics is about relationships between participants of the market. And when we are talking about relationships between people, then morality becomes a part of the formula. You know, in other words, honesty and trustworthiness and truthfulness become a necessary part of a good relationship. Now, this book is based on the three principles of the free market economy or free market capitalism, that is production and distribution and consumption, and also principles that are required for having an ideal and enlightened globalization, with a reference, of course, to the Baha'i writings. Let me expand these three principles, because if your listeners are, especially with an economic background, I think they will enjoy exploring this topic a little bit more. So I'm going to say very briefly what this book is talking about production and distribution and consumption if that's okay with you. Yes, please proceed. You see, let me start with production. You know, organizations are established to respond to our needs and wants by producing products. Now, profit motive and its maximization is the main objective of these organizations. They use a variety of techniques to reduce their cost and increase profit. And they do anything to achieve this. Examples include exploitation, discrimination, paying low wages, paying fewer taxes whenever possible, having easy access to cheaper natural resources, and causing environmental damage with no responsibility to fix it. 
the wealth of some of these organizations are known as multinational corporations are bigger than GDP or the gross domestic product of a country. And the income of some of the CEOs or chief executives of these companies is several hundred times larger than employees working in the same organization. Now, a good number of these products that are produced are either unnecessary or destructive or damaging to our health and to the environment, which in an ideal world, these products should be removed from the market. Of course, some of the listeners of this program are concerned that by removing these products from the market, unemployment will be created. Well, this is a reasonable question. But for me, in the long run, there will be opportunities for having replacement jobs in around the world. Now, we go to the second principle, which is about distribution. This is the most unjust and unfair part of free market capitalism. This is the part that has led to increasing the gap between the rich and the poor. The rationale of the free market economy, which I mean, some of your listeners may know, especially those with some economic background, that the, the rationale stated by an economist called Adam Smith in 1776, he wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations. He's talking about the rationale of the free market economy, is that people are rational thinkers and they know what's best for them. And the market balances itself automatically in the long run. That's what Adam Smith saying, and that's what written in The Wealth of Nations. But in practice, it's a different story. Consumers, in many instances, don't have sufficient and adequate information and knowledge about products. And that's what we see today, that governments have a very active intervention to regulate the market, which in the view of Adam Smith, the government should have minimum involvement in the market. But today we see governments have very active intervention. And a couple of words about consumption. You see, consumer society has led consumerism, and this is another challenge of our time. Consumerism is spreading to every part of the world, even to the less developed countries and the poor countries. So there is a crisis in all parts of the market. And the story of inconsistency of the free market capitalism is not finished. It is expected to be with us for a longer period of time. And this is the story of free market economy. And after two centuries of capitalism, this is the condition we live today. A total disaster in all aspects of the market, which is fundamentally exploitive and unsustainable and create economic inequality. This is a type of economy with uncontrolled, unregulated, and unlimited and unrestricted challenges. Therefore, the free market economy is in crisis. This is not only me that I'm talking about this. There are a number of writers 
For example, Paul Collier stated, uh, I just paraphrased, Collier says that capitalism is delivering for some people but leaving others behind. Joseph Stiglitz states that capitalism has created rich cities with poor people. Imagine a city like New York, which is the richest city in the world, and 20% of population live under a poverty line. This is exactly what Joseph Stiglitz says. And Amartya Sen, also a critic of capitalism, says capitalism is lacking morality. So these are the three basic principles of free market economy. And I tried in this book to state that the free market economy is in crisis and morality is ignored in this system. Uh, it is not only me that I'm saying this. There are a number, a good number of writers in recent years that uh, they are writing about this. So, Hushman, to have a fairer system, what should be the new look of the free market economy? Okay. Yeah, this is a very good question, uh, Varen. You see, most capitalists are aware of these challenges. You know, they have written books and they talk about this. As I mentioned, they are aware that the time has come to either fix this free market capitalism or end it. Now, it can be argued that capitalist is only one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is linked to the rest of the market. That is consumers, shareholders, financial institutions, government and government agencies, sellers, marketers, farmers, educational institutions, families and religious institutions, you know, all are responsible and contribute to the crisis of this free market capitalism. In other words, we are all a part of it, directly or indirectly. We cannot separate ourselves from this market. And because we are a part of it, we should be also a part to fix it. So all participants of the market should be blamed. Do you think humanity will reach the goal of uh, such a just free market economy? Yes. Well, this is another good question, Warren. Let me mention the example of pandemic COVID-19. This pandemic is still with us. You know, pandemic COVID-19 demonstrated that for any alternative system of conducting human affairs, it is extremely important to consider the interconnectedness of people and nations of the world. Let me once again quote Amartya Sen. I'm paraphrasing what he said. He said that the relationships between different members of the economy must be put right. Only then there will be enough to go around. So if we want free market economy to function properly, the relationship among the participants of the market must be put right. And anytime we are talking about relationship, as I said earlier, ethics and morality play an important role. Now, 
it is becoming increasingly clear that the world has been reduced to a global village. And in an ideal sense, the village represents the entire humanity. These changes have made our world smaller, and hence it was easy for this current COVID-19 pandemic to spread fast throughout the world without consideration of any discrimination and border limitation. With this pandemic, some of the challenges and problems of current globalization is actually understood. And the new awareness about an ideal globalization based on the concept of unity is shaping. So in the short term, the free market economy needs to be fixed through effective regulation and some kind of restriction. But in the long run, we do need an alternative system of economics that is universal, flexible, and also ethical. A system allowing to have an economy suitable for global interdependency of people and nations and be able to create an ideal balanced economy. So the prerequisite for such a system would be unity among people and nations. So for me, pandemic COVID-19 is an excellent example about the type of question you ask. And if you want to single out one principle from the Baha'i writings as a solution to reducing the gap between the rich and the poor, and a fair mm. distributive justice, which one would that be? Well, there are a number of principles, but let me choose moderation. If I want to single out one Baha'i principle as a solution to many economic problems, moderation is that principle. Moderation in economic sustainability that requires creating a balance between the lowest and the highest standard of living. Moderation is a condition when there will not be the abnormally rich nor the abject poor. Therefore, the economic description of moderation is expressed as uh, eliminating extremes of wealth and poverty. Let me also add, it will not be fair if I don't mention another principle and relating that to moderation. Uh, the principle of unity should be also singled out. Another distinguishing characteristic of an approach to human well-being and also globalization. A popular statement of Baha'u'llah, the prophet and founder of the Baha'i faith, states that the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. So the Baha'i view on globalization is not simply limited to the economic and financial aspects of life. Baha'i globalization is a vision of world unity that embraces every aspect of human life, such as education and politics and environment, governance and institutions. So globalization is therefore a commitment and a moral obligation for Baha'is to safeguard the interests of all people and nations. So the current process of globalization is not 
in accordance with the Baha'i teachings because it is not based on a high standard of justice. So whenever we want to talk about Baha'i principles, all Baha'i principles and Baha'i teachings are an instrument to achieve unity of humankind. Many people may feel hopeless that as the economic disparity between rich and poor is going in the wrong direction, that Mm -hmm. it'll never change. Yet the Baha'i teaching says that the solution to the economic problem is a spiritual one. And we also are taught in the Baha'i faith that we believe as Baha'is that humanity is progressing spiritually and Mm -hmm. that it is the Baha'i vision of hopefulness that as civilization evolves spiritually, these dysfunctions of the economic system can be remedied. What do you think about that? The question whether I am optimistic and hopeful about the future, let me say here that yes, I am optimistic and hopeful about a better future. In fact, in my view, All of us should be optimistic and work towards it. The alternative is having a miserable life for all of us. So the choice is ours. We have to remember that humans have an altruistic nature and like to show by doing good things. In fact, some of the wealthiest people have given the vast bulk of their wealth to philanthropy. This super-rich recognizes that the extremes of wealth and poverty are detrimental to humanity. Also, let me again go back to COVID-19. During this period of COVID-19, wonderful things also happened that are signs of the true altruistic and ethical nature of human beings. And this is demonstrated by hundreds of businesses organizations as a part of transforming input into output based on ethical principle. So good things are happening and I am very optimistic and hopeful because the alternative is having a miserable life for all of us. If you allow me, Warren, I will say a few examples of what happened during this COVID-19 I mean, wonderful things that have happened. And that shows that really we have to be optimistic and hopeful about the future. And businesses are not only thinking about profit. They have some altruistic nature and they are working towards that. For example, a number of tobacco companies have invested in research for development of a vaccine for COVID-19. A number of fashion designer companies have also invested in making personal protective equipment. A number of car manufacturers are making ventilators for hospitals. Interesting thing happened with hotels. A number of five-star hotels have offered their kitchens to small restaurants to use and stay in the market. So these and many, many more profit-based organizations and non-profit organizations 
have a positive impact on the world by contributing enormous amount of their resources and their wealth to help the present condition. So going back to your earlier question, Warren, does humanity will reach the goal of distributive justice? In my view, this is a process that requires some time. In the near future, the wealthy people become so much more sensitive and compassionate that they will not enjoy their luxury in comparison with the deploring poverty of people. Perhaps, again, in my view, perhaps one reason that some rich countries are helping the poor is their realization that in the long run, the poverty of people become a problem for the rich countries. I wanted to mention a couple of more examples, especially with COP26, which is the conferences of parties related to environment, and one of them just finished in Glasgow a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And the question of human displacement and migration, you know, mm-hmm. are issues that we are facing every day and shows the level of high interdependency of not only humans, but also the whole planet. We're realizing that more and more problems, whether it's human migration or climate change or the worldwide globalization system, we're realizing we can't solve these as discrete nations, that we have to solve them as a unified set of people. One reason that world leaders gathered in many conferences, such as COP26 that ended a few weeks ago, to discuss issues related to the environment and also human rights and poverty, you know, and other global issues, is that they have realized they are not able to deal with global issues and even their own internal issues alone. And they are in need to support each other. So with COP26 and other similar events, the embryonic condition for greater integration is created. But at the same time, we do have challenges and we need to be aware of them. I like to explain this with the analogy of family. That is my very favorite analogy and and comparison of the smallest unit of the society with the larger society. You see, the use of the analogy of the family in economic activities is very helpful, given the similarities between the features and the structure of a family and those of economics. For example, you know, the partnership is one of the features of a family. This is an approach based on an explicit concept of caring and helping process. It demonstrates how a partnership enables parents and children to overcome their difficulties, build strengths and resilience, and fulfill their goals more effectively. The integrity of the family is based on mutual love and trust and service to others, to each other, and sacrifice for one another. So these qualities are essential for the family to succeed. Otherwise, the family would become dysfunctional and chaotic and will break apart. So let me now explore the concept of family 
looking at the similarities of the nature of the family unit and its relationship with larger society. There are a number of questions that we can raise when we talk about this comparison of the smallest unit of society, family, with economics. These are some of those questions. For example, in the family unit, with very limited resources, the weaker members of the family, mostly children, are under extreme care. Now, how come today, as we are speaking over, a billion people in the world go to bed hungry? Another question. In the family unit, the resources are shared among the members of the family on the basis of equity. How come today, in the wider society, 80% of the world resources are in the hands of only 20% of population, and the gap is increasing every day? Another question. In the family unit, most activities are based on cooperation. How come in the wider society, it is based on aggressive and, and relentless competition? And finally, in the family unit, members sacrifice their own well-being for the happiness of other members of the family. But in the wider society, it is based on self-interest, and even worse than that, selfishness. So responding to these questions, we may agree that in the larger society, our activities and behavior are based on models and systems that are in place, and they are mostly obsolete and outdated. Of course, the world condition is much more complicated than a unit of family. But if those moral principles are working within the smallest unit of society, for me, it should also work in the wider society. Pushman, I want to thank you so much for taking this hour to share with us your views of the economy of the world and how possibly we can move to a more just economic system. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Barbara. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Hushmand Badi, an economist who has written two books on the Baha'i teachings on economics. The first one is Principles of Spiritual Economics, and the second, Economics in the Baha'i Faith. You can find his work at hushmanbadi.com. That's Hushmand, H-O-O-S-H-M-A-N-D, and Badi, B-A-D-E-E, Badi.com. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. source of our vision T
teachings of a holy man who spoke to us from prison. Pupil of the eye, the creator's gift of sight, a gift for all humanity, seekers of the light. There are so many things we say that influence the mind. Those hidden little messages that are so hard to find. To show just one example, let's talk about a color. How black is shown as negative in one way or another. Of course, we know that's not the case when we refer to white. In fact, we use the color white to represent what's right. But those of us that have a tone that's of a darker hue see blackness in a different light, another point of view. Pupil of the eye, the source of our vision, teachings of a holy man spoke to us from prison. Pupil of the eye, the Creator's gift of sight, a gift for all humanity, seekers of the light. Sounds that enter through the ear, melodies of old, orchestrating different notes to touch and soothe the soul. A symphony of music, creating a harmony, appreciating differences with its diversity. A special walk, that soulful talk, flavored with pizzazz. Innovative music, just listen to some jazz. Reggae, hip-hop, samba. And don't forget the blues. Ways to find expression. Years of paying dues. Pupil of the eye. The source of our vision. Teachings of a holy man who spoke to us from prison. Pupil of the eye. The creator's gift of sight. The queen of class and dignity, Oprah, seen and heard. America's classical music, from Duke, Diz, and Bird. International leadership with strength, yet always calm. Promoting peace and unity, Mr. Kofi Annan. Uplifting words that touch your heart, from Maya Angelou, a pioneer in medicine, Dr. Charles Drew, Arthur Ashe and Jim Brown speaking out. They weren't afraid. 
Marva Collins and Bill Cosby, helping you to make it great. Pupil of the eye, the source of our vision. Teachings of a holy man who spoke to us from prison. Pupil of the eye, the creator's gift of sight. A gift for all humanity. Malcolm Martin Mandela Standards for the world To make this earth a better place For every boy and girl Beige and brown and black and white A variety of colors Yet one human family all sisters and brothers bearing burdens from the past enslaved and sometimes sold enduring untold horrors while survival was the goal but darkness equals mystery a search for the unknown seeking spirituality we know we're not alone the Earth's human garden we see before our eyes. Representing unity, if we only realize. But as we care for flowers, so none will be neglected. Humanity is much the same. We all must be respected. Pupil of the eye, the source of our vision. Of a holy man who spoke to us from prison. Pupil of the eye, the creator's gift of sight, a gift for all humanity, seekers of the light. Yes, we're seekers of the light. Unity is what we need for you and me.